Let's pray one more time, and then we'll spend some time in the book of Proverbs this morning. So let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we're so very thankful for your son Jesus, once again, who's come and died on the cross for our sins. We're so very thankful that you've created us to enjoy you, to enjoy each other. So very thankful for the gift of music that we can express our uh, adoration and love for you. And as we think about these, these, the words that were sung this morning, we ask, Father, that they would also be reflections of our heart. And Father, as we look at your watch care over the soul of those who are yours, we ask that your spirit would be moving in our hearts, causing us to see the truth that's found in the text, that you would expose to us the sins that we need to repent of, and that you would encourage our hearts that we might seek to honor and live for you uh, the days of our lives. We are so very thankful. In your son's name, amen. This morning, I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 6. I know we're going to be in Proverbs later, but I want to start here. And as you're turning there, I, I don't know. I, I imagine when I imagine everything that Jesus said was profound. Uh, even when he would say hello to people, I imagine that would be profound. I mean, you think of like John 4, just a simple, hey, can I have a drink of water, turns into this incredible ministry opportunity for the Lord Jesus. So, of course... Uh, Everything he says is profound, and there are, everything that he teaches in the scriptures is profound, right? I don't want to say that one is more important than the other. They're all important, but there are some texts to me that um, seem more profound in my life. And just notice this is one of those. So just notice in verse 19 of Matthew 6. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is it not more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Of which of, which of, you, uh, excuse me, uh, of, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. 
they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious in saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, long section, I know, but what an incredible section, right? And in the section that we picked out, it starts with Jesus giving a negative, and he gives a negative, or he gives a command, and it's a negative command, do not lay up for yourselves. You all must not do this. Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And the interesting reason that the Lord gives is because it's very temporary. It can be destroyed, right? A bug can destroy it. Rust can destroy it, or it could be it could be stolen, right? It's a temporary thing. It's not a it's not a worthy investment, right? It's like if, if Jesus was giving us investment advice, he would say, These things are not good investments because they don't last. You might get them today, but they will be gone tomorrow. And what do you do tomorrow when it's gone? But then he gives them the positive command. Notice in verse 20 he says, But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. I always found it interesting that Jesus never really talked about how you do that or what those treasures are. I think we could, by implication through the rest of the sermon, kind of understand what Jesus means when he says lay up treasures in heaven. And even from the rest of the statements, it's this idea of being submissive to God's will. That's, that's what you're supposed to do, and God is the rewarder of those who do those things. And so I, I think that's kind of the understanding, but the, but the sense is, this is these are eternal things. And then he makes this, this comment in verse 21, and this is really where I want to lean. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you would kind of say, yeah, that's kind of obvious, right? What I, what I value the most, that's really what I value. Thanks, Jesus. You didn't really add anything to the conversation. But he did. It's so profound, right? Because you could imagine, imagine you're in the crowd and Jesus says, you need to invest your time and energy in things that are valuable. And everybody go, Amen. That's right. That's what I'm going to go home and do. But then he says, but realize this, your heart wants something. That's what you treasure. And so the issue is not so much laying up, where, where just going out and just doing something to lay up treasure. It's the idea is, is that really where your heart is? Is that really where your passion is, right? It's, a, it's an issue of passion. So where your heart is, that's where your passion is. Where your passion is, that's where your energy is. And where your energy is, that's where you're going to be spending your time. And so then Jesus then goes on to, to, to challenge them to say, look, you guys have to have a right perspective, right? G- g- see the world correctly. And, and then he says, look, you can't serve two masters. You could think, okay, well, I'll invest in both. I'll save up here on earth and in heaven. I'll do both of them. How about that? And Jesus says, you can't do that. And then he gives an example of, what that might look like for somebody to be devoted to an earthly master, to money, to store up treasure. And it's this whole conversation about what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, all of these things. And he, and he says, don't you get it? Don't you get it? God, God provides for the wild birds. God clothes the grass. Why are you so concerned and so anxious about these other things? And then he gives them this, 
incredible thing in, in verse 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom. I, I think this would mean to submit to his, his will, understand his program, basically understand what God's doing, and seek his righteousness. Notice that it's don't become righteous. He didn't say become righteous. He said seek his righteousness. Paul will later explain this when he says that he doesn't want a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that he wants that righteousness which comes on the basis of faith, right? So seek first what God's doing. Seek first what he's doing. And then he says this incredible statement, and all these things will be added, right? So it's likely that we could go out and look for those other things and strive for those other things, but, but Jesus is saying, no, you got to have a biblical perspective. You have to have a right perspective. Focus on the thing that's the most important, that's the weightiest. And don't you think that God won't take care of you? Like, like, like he takes care of everything else. He runs the entire universe all the time. He never sleeps. And you think that if you give your life to him, he'll just go, you're on your own, son. No, he's a good father. He will take care of you. Now, I bring this up because our passage in Proverbs deals with it. And it, it is kind of interesting that even Jesus mentions Solomon. He says, the, the grass of the field and the flowers don't even look as great as Solomon. And one would wonder what was going through the mind of the Savior as he was preaching the sermon. And i got to be honest, as I was looking at this, this text in Matthew and looking at our text this morning, you would say, I wonder if the Lord was meditating on Proverbs and this particular proverb that we're about ready to go over because it deals with the same thing. It deals with this idea of submission to God, submission to God's will. And as you're pursuing righteousness, as you're pursuing the things that God wants, God will take care of you. So the pursuit of the righteous person, the pursuit of the wise person is for God's wisdom. That's the pursuit. The pursuit itself is, is, is what God wants. It's his righteousness. It's doing the things that he wants. That's the pursuit of the righteous. And the sense is, is as you do that, guess what? He will take care of all the rest. He will. That, that's what he does. He's a good father. He does that stuff for us. So let's dive a little bit deeper into some of this, and let's go to Proverbs 21. Lord willing... We will go all the way to verse 21. So we're going to be in 18 through 21. I really want to point out three things from this text for you this morning. In verse 18, as we look at, if you pursue righteousness, you will have divine protection. That's what we're going to look at in verse 18. There will be this divine protection. Next, in verse 19 through 20, if you pursue righteousness, you will have divine prosperity. We'll define what prosperity is. I don't want you to think that I've gone all prosperity preacher on you because I'm not. We'll talk about what that prosperity looks like. And then lastly, and probably the most important one is verse 21, that if we pursue righteousness, we will have a divine reward or a spiritual reward. That's the far greater reward, by the way. It's by far the greatest reward. So one, we're going to see divine protection. Two, we're going to see divine prosperity, and three, we're going to see divine reward. So notice verse 18 is looking at this divine protection. It says, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright. No matter how you cut this verse, one commentator said, it is difficult. This is a tough one. And what makes this so difficult is that little word ransom. 
right, has the idea of one for another. And there's been some pretty wonky interpretations from this particular proverb, and you kind of look at it and go, man, I, I mean, I don't think the rest of the Bible says that, but you can definitely take this one out of context, out of all of the Bible, and you can come up to some pretty strange conclusions. There have been some, I imagine, have taken this to mean that if we kill all the wicked people, God will be happy, and he'll see that as a way of atonement for us. Now, you might say, no one has ever, ever come to that conclusion before. Of course they have. Have you ever met people? Think about the Crusades. One of the major motivations of the Crusades was to kill an infidel was one of those ways of freeing Jerusalem so that you would go to heaven. Of course they see it this way. That, that, that's what the flesh does. Every time we go to a text that's difficult, we often go, okay, what do I really want it to say? And that's what it means. Instead of saying, what does it really say? Really, within our camp of, of evangelicals and, and Bible believers, there's really two interpretations here. Uh, they both kind of fit. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you why I accept the second one, letting the cat out of the bag. The second one's the one I agree with. The first one, if you agree with it, get out. No, I'm joking. No, the first interpretation of how people see it is this, is that the, the wicked obtain things that are meant for the righteous. And that this verse is actually a call for justice. So, so the idea is Solomon's son, who's a king, is reading this, and he sees that there's this injustice. And what, what, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to take from the wicked and give what's duly to the righteous. Now, this isn't foreign to the book of Proverbs. We've seen this a couple times in the book of Proverbs. This isn't a foreign concept, right? It's not theologically wrong. The second one, and this is probably the one of what, what I think Solomon means, is the idea of this, is that the wicked have these grand designs for the righteous people to hurt them, to steal from them, to do all sorts of bad stuff. And the Lord works it out that the very thing that the wicked have planned for the righteous will trap them. So in one sense, the Lord is buying them out of the trap and then pushing the wicked into the trap. So the thing that they had designed to punish the righteous person, they're going to get themselves. Classic example, Haman and Mordecai, right? Here's Haman. He wanted to kill Mordecai. He wanted to do all this stuff. And the very devices that he was going to use on poor Mordecai, the Lord turned on his head. Daniel in the lion's den, right? All the people that tried to throw Daniel in the lion's den, the Lord rescued Daniel from the lion's den and then threw them in instead, right? There's numerous examples of this. And the reason that I think this is kind of what Solomon has in mind is actually not the first part of this parallelism, right? The first clause. It's actually in the second clause. If you notice in the second clause, in the synthetic parallelism, he says, and the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright. So it's clear that the traitor and the wicked are connected and the upright and the righteous are connected. And the word for traitor has this idea of somebody who has, they want to hurt somebody, right? They feign, they lie, we're friends, and then they turn around and stab you in the back. They're traitors, right? They're ones who depart. So through this parallelism, it would seem by connecting traitor and the wicked that the second one, is the most likely one, that there was some sort of plan to hurt, some sort of plan of leaving that would hurt the righteous, and then the Lord then will take that 
wicked person and that, that, that way that they were trying to hurt the righteous, the Lord will bring it about on them. And like I said, there's numerous examples of this type of thing happening throughout the Bible. We already mentioned Haman and Mordecai. But as I was thinking this morning, I thought, well, this is kind of a cool principle. Um, and, and I've definitely seen this in play, but I, I'm definitely thankful that this is not a law. Because at one time, I was wicked, right? And if this is a law, uh-oh, right? Because we're all wicked, so that would be bad. But as I think about these principles in Proverbs, you have to realize that principles require discernment when you apply that principle. And sometimes you can have two principles that are opposite of each other, but the situation di- dictates something different, right? That's what a principle is. So here's this principle that we have, that, that this is how God will protect his people sometimes. But there is one case where this is not the case, and I'm so very thankful. I'm so very thankful that this is not a law, especially when it comes with Barabbas and Jesus, right? Where Jesus definitely was the righteous, and he ransomed himself for the wicked. Of course, this principle plays out differently because of different circumstances. So, believer, know this, that if you are pursuing righteousness, the Lord will take care of you. He will. He will take care of you. And the the principle is, he will take care of you from those who devise evil things against you. He will take care of you. He will protect you. Now, sometimes that protection doesn't look like what we want it to be. There are times where I wish God's protection involved a huge rock falling from the sky on top of the person who's our enemy, and then they're done, and that's it. And that's what God's protection looks like. That's what we pray for. And when it doesn't happen, we say, look, God doesn't protect us, does he? But that's not the case. We've been protected numerous ways in, in, in the way that gives God the most credit and the most glory. There are even times where when we think about protection, we must remember that protection isn't always on this plane, on this side of glory. Sometimes that protection involves life. And this section of our life is only a section. There is a greater, longer section coming on the other side of glory. So God's protection might not necessarily be on this side, but it definitely is a guarantee to the other side. So this principle of God's divine protection, just think of this verse, the wicked have a design for the righteous. There are people that are out in our world right now that hate God's law. I don't think anybody can deny that. They hate the things of God. I don't think anybody can deny that. They're actively trying to destroy the very things that we say this is what God teaches. And they are scheming. They are. I don't want to get into conspiracy theory, but anytime two fools get together to try to silence a righteous person, that's a conspiracy. That happens. But know this, believer. God's the one in charge. Know this, believer. He wins. So we might lose a couple battles on this side, but this is all, he, God is playing a long game. And there are things that he allows to happen in our life that make us more like Jesus. And so there may be a time that we see this principle come to fruition where, where someone has an evil intention for us. They set a trap for us. And that very trap that they set for us, 
they get caught up in themselves. We shouldn't dance with glee, by the way, whenever we see a wicked person fall into a trap of their own demise. That's just cruel. I don't, I don't think that's what love would do. I, I think we should have a sense of, thank you, Lord, for your protection. Thank you, Lord, that, that you have protected me through this. I think there should be a sense of, of a broken heart, of the wickedness and foolishness of that person. We should be praying for their repentance, and we should, we should be asking the Lord to, to save them. But this is a principle. He protects us. And so I, I know a lot of people, they, they, they have tried to give me excuses over the years of why they can't lead a righteous life or do things that are righteous or follow the law, God's law, or, or, or do the things that they're supposed to do. And one of the things that they say is, well, how am I supposed to protect myself? I need to have money in the bank Or how else can I protect myself against inflation? I need to go out and work on Sunday. Or how else will I get jobs later on? I need to protect myself by doing this. By preemptively doing something that's evil against a person to get them fired so that I don't get fired. These things come up. That is not wisdom. And that is not the way of God. We should pursue righteousness and trust the Lord that he will take care of us. And if he decides to take care of us in a way that's different than what we think it looks like, we should say amen and continue to trust the Lord. Now, there's another proverb. Notice the next one in the next verse. If we continue in righteousness or pursue righteousness, that we have divine prosperity. And, and what I mean here is domestic, because notice, notice verse 19. It says it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. <laughs> this is almost exactly the same wording as in verse 9, okay? but it is escalated. Uh, in verse 9, the guy says, I don't want to live in this house with my wife because she's quarrelsome, so I'm willing to live on the roof. I'm willing to live on the lamey's roof. Uh, you know, they're getting their roof done. This one is, you know what? I'm moving to Albuquerque. Desert. I, I don't want to be, it's better to live where there's nothing, no protection, no water, no fuel, right? No way of feeding yourself. I, it's better to live there than to live with a, with a, with a wife or a spouse who's quarrelsome and, and, and likes to fight. Uh, as we said last time in verse 9, do not think that this is just picking on wives, that Solomon is just sexist. I, I think he's doing this poetically to demonstrate that both men and women are fools. And you could easily take wife and substitute the word in husband, right? It's the same thing. It's the same principle. But what causes a person to live with somebody and then say, you know what, I would rather live in the desert than stay another second in this house with you. What causes that? This ongoing rebellion and foolishness. This, this self-centeredness. This is what happens when people are selfish, when people only care about themselves, and when they, when they let the flesh out, and they don't, they don't live by the power of the Spirit. This type of stuff happens. And, and when a marriage gets to this level of where somebody goes, I'd rather live in a desert than with you, know that this is a product of time, of open rebellion, of lots and lots and lots 
of open rebellion. You don't find wise people saying this. I, I've really never met a, a, a wise person who I, who I thought was living for the Lord and constantly repenting and spending time with the Lord. Nine times out of ten, when you look at their life, there's never this question of somebody saying, I'd rather live in the desert than spend time with you. Right? There's always this sense of somebody who's kind, loving, says the right thing at the right time with the right attitude, always wants people to grow, never really wants to put people down, always is pointing them to the Lord. They're, they're always amassing more and more friends. They're not becoming more and more isolated and people wanting to get away from them. So here, Solomon reminds us of the, the devastating effect of foolishness and rebellion. Foolishness of of forsaking God's law, this is the type of stuff that happens. This this is what happens. So so as he's comparing and contrasting, then notice then the next verse. He says something, uh, he says, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So you have one guy that says, I'd rather live where there's nothing, but in the house of a wise person, you have precious treasure Um, I don't know about you, but I do find this rather redundant because by definition, treasure is precious. So saying I have have something that's precious, precious, you kind of go, well, you just needed one. But it does point out the fact that there's something very valuable, something very valuable in the house of the wise. And remember last week when we talked about oil, oil is the sense of luxury, Right? It was a sense of, of luxury. It, it, was, it was a sense of, of, of being financially well off. Now, some of you might look at this and go, now wait a minute, Caleb. Didn't we just read the thing about Jesus where he said, don't worry about what you're supposed to eat, what you're supposed to wear, what you're supposed to drink, and all these things will be added. But, but the sense is you can't amass things. You're not supposed to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. How is it then that the wise man then has all the stuff that Jesus said don't get? How do we reconcile that? First of all, realize this. The principle is the wise man is using discernment even with his money. And one thing about not spending money is you get to keep it. So obviously as a wise man is using his money wisely, there is this just natural accumulation of just things, right? Just from working and providing there is this aspect that the Lord does bless. But I want to I I say this other thing. Money and wealth is not the issue. Just because you have a lot of it, doesn't, that doesn't, that's not the issue, right? Having a lot of money is not the issue. It's seeking to have a lot of money. That's the issue. When the treasure is the treasure in among itself when that's the goal, when that's the thing that you're pursuing, when that's the thing that you love above everything else, that's when it becomes a problem. God is never against wealth. He's against that's the only thing in a person's life. When it becomes your master and it's the only thing that you can think about, when it's the only thing that you live for, when, it, when, it, when, when that becomes the most important principle in your life, I have to get another dollar. I have to have this appearance of affluence. That's when it's dangerous. So, so that type of love, that type of dedication to money, opens the door to all kinds of bad stuff. 
It's not having that's the problem. It's it in among itself that's the issue. So a wise man is actually seeking wisdom. And, and to use his money wisely, to use it frugally, to, use, to, to be a steward of what God has given him, to use it in a way that brings him honor and glory. And the natural process of that is accumulating stuff. Uh, the, the, and that's great. That's how the Lord kind of has planned it. That as we plan our lives and as we do things, we're supposed to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us. Not so are the fool. Right? So the fool, notice, notice what happens in verse 20. It says, but a foolish man devours it. Do you see that selfishness? It's that same selfishness at the end of verse 20 that is the same thing that's being talked about in verse 19. It's just, I'm living for the moment. I'm living now. I'm living for instant gratification. I'm, I'm living for my own pleasure, for my own comfort. I'm living for me right now. I'm getting everything I can get for me at this moment. If that's that's, that's how a fool thinks. A fool thinks like that. A wise man says, no, there's, there's more important things in life than this. Following God's law is far more important than money and, and having money. I, I need to use my money wisely because it's a gift from God. But, but I, I'm pursuing righteousness. I'm pursuing Christ. I'm spending time with him. My, my heart, my heart, and my passion is honoring and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's what a wise person says. And, and as a product, as a product, that person is spending their money wisely. Like they don't get a bonus and then go, guess where I'm going? Vegas. Spending all my money on a video poker machine. I'm going to blow all of it in three minutes. Watch this. A, a wise person doesn't do stuff like that. Because they realize that's not what the Lord would want for me. To, that's not being a good steward of what he's given me. So, notice how the Lord provides for the wise. As the wise seek the wisdom of God, no doubt as the Lord blesses the wise as well, there is this accumulation of prosperity. It's not that they're the richest guy in the neighborhood, but it's they use their money wisely and the Lord takes care of them financially. That's an incredible truth, isn't it? It's an incredible truth. Now notice the next notice the next principle. We might not finish everything that we need to say this morning uh, in this principle, so we might we might come back to it because I, I think this one is so important that we, we need to drill as much as we can possibly drill on this next one. So we'll make a couple introductory statements here. We'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff, and maybe next week we'll come back and we'll kind of rest here a little bit more. But he says. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Oh, man, this, this is the big one. Because a righteous person, a wise person, you see their goal. You, you automatically see what they're going after, right? They're going after righteousness, and they're going after kindness. That's, that's their object. That's, that's what they want. They want righteousness, and they want, they want this this love, right? That, that's probably a better word here, love, than kindness. That, that's their focus. And notice what they receive. They receive something far greater than money. They receive something far greater than just temporal uh, comfort. They receive life. That's incredible. They get life. They also receive righteousness. 
Some of your Bibles may translate this as they receive a bounty. They'll use this word righteousness as a bounty. I'm going to break from some of those guys and say, what if you seek righteousness for righteousness sake and you receive righteousness and that's a far better reward than a paycheck? That's going to be my line of thinking. And then there's honor. That's what happens. That's a spiritual reward for those who are pursuing righteousness. So just notice what Solomon says. He says, whoever. That's kind of insinuated in the text. You have this person who's pursuing. The, way, the word for pursuing is uh, to, to chase after. It, it's used for the same word of hunting. I don't know if any of you have ever been hunting before or done any serious hunting. Uh, if you go with me, it's just called hiking. Uh, you don't get anything at the end. I have a 50-mile radius around me that all the animals that we're trying to hunt run away, and all the animals that we want to hunt next season come near. So if you want that experience, hook me up, and uh, we'll go out, and we'll see all sorts of creatures you didn't know lived in Oregon, and all the creatures you thought lived here, they're in Washington. So, but that's the idea, right? It's this hard, intensive-looking, chasing. There's this, there's this clear goal, right? That, that's what it is. To, to, to chase after something, to hunt after something, you have to have in your mind exactly this is what I'm going for. And, and notice the first thing that, this, that the wise does. They go after righteousness. Now, I, I guess in one sense we could say they're, they're trying to live a life, pursue righteousness as a, as a way of living. They want to become righteous, right? They want to, they want to follow God's law. That, that's their pursuit, to follow God's law. And, and, and no doubt Solomon probably has that in mind. But I think this is pretty open when he says righteousness. I think, this could, I think this is kind of said in such an ambiguous way that we're supposed to stop and think. What does that mean to pursue righteousness? What does that look like to pursue righteousness? What does that mean to be righteous? What does that look like? We know from... Early on, even from the book of Genesis, that it's on the basis of faith that someone is declared righteous, right? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a principle from the first pages of Scripture all the way to the end. And so what does it mean to pursue righteousness? It obviously has to mean that thing that Paul talks about in Philippians, where he says, I don't want a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It it must start with this idea of, I want God to consider me righteous, right? That's where it has to start. I want God to consider me righteous. So I'm pursuing that idea of, I want God to look at me and say I'm righteous. Friends, the only way that that's possible, the only way that's possible is not by going to church more. It's not possible by doing the right kinds of things. It's belief in God and the promises of God. As a believer, what did I believe? I believed Jesus came and died on the cross for my sins, was buried, rose again on the third day. I believed the promise that if I trust in him and him alone, I'll have eternal life. And guess what happened the moment I did that? I was declared righteous. That's where it has to start. That's where it has to start. Any other way of trying to become righteous other than starting through that gate, it's not righteousness. In fact, Paul talks about the Jews and them trying to establish their own righteousness on the basis of their good deeds. You can't do that. There's this other incredible 
thing that happens in the New Testament, that when I place my faith in Christ, I'm not just declared righteous, but I'm given the righteousness of Christ, right? I'm imputed with the righteousness of Christ. That's incredible. I'm declared righteous, and then, and then God sees me through the righteousness of his son, through his obedience. His obedience then is credited to my account. It's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And from that, then I have this indwelling Holy Spirit, and the indwelling Holy Spirit helps me empowers me as I yield to his power, as I look to the word, he empowers me then to lead a life that is consistent with what we find in the scriptures. In my opinion, as a believer, when we read this statement, pursue righteousness, that's what it looks like. I want that righteousness which comes from God. I want that righteousness which comes on the basis of faith. I want that righteousness which is produced by the power of the spirit. I want that righteousness that as I step out in obedience, trusting him and submitting him, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That, that's what I'm wanting. I'm wanting that right relationship with him. I, I want to walk in a way that's right. That's what we're pursuing. Now, notice the next thing that the righteous is pursuing, and we'll end here this morning. It says kindness. The word is said. Said is, is really... Love, kindness, covenant love. In, in one sense, we could say righteousness is dealing with God. I want to have the right relationship with God. I want to be walking in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So there's this, there's this relationship with me and him. And then this hased love, this covenant love, is dealing with my neighbors. I want to love them. That's, that's what he pursues, Love. I'm, I'm amazed at how many times in the New Testament we're told to love one another. John, what does Jesus say? You will, they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. We've made the comment before, it's no trouble for me to make it again, and it's probably good that we all hear it numerous times. Most of the time when we hear that phrase, love one another, there's something inside of our mind that says, well, that automatically means somebody who's not a believer. I need to love them. That's not what Jesus said. He's talking to disciples, to a select group, and he says, they will know you are my disciple as you love one another. Meaning that as a believer, there should be this intense love for one another. That's it. First love, us, right? The church. I mean, obviously, if you're married, your spouse is that. But just speaking from, from the sense of a church, where should our love be focused? One another. That's it. How will they know that we're disciples of Christ? How we treat one another. Now, I know that we always treat everybody the best, and we don't have to talk about how we've been all unloving to each other. I'm joking, right? Obviously, we've been very unloving to one another, right? Paul defines this beautifully. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 13. This is what it looks like to love one another, to have these types of things. 1 Corinthians 13, we could sum this all up by saying this is what Christ-like love is. When Christ acted and he walked around, this is how he walked. So notice in 1 Corinthians 13, just notice in verse 4, it says, love is patient. So if I love you, I'm going to be patient with you, which means I'm going to have a long fuse with you, which means I'm not going to explode on you quickly, right? I'm not going to fly off the handle immediately. If I love you, that's what it's going to look like. 
there's going to be this patience. I'm going to deal with you in all your quirks, and you're going to deal with me in all my quirks. There's going to be patience, right? We annoy each other, but we're going to deal with each other patiently. That's what love is. Now, it's possible to be patient with somebody, but not be kind, right? I've, that's true. But notice the next thing. And love is kind. It's kind. It, it, it's empathetic. It's compassionate. So if I love you, I'm going to be kind towards you. Right? If Caleb Hilbert loves the believers here at Lewis and Clark Bible Church, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be kind. I'm going to treat you with kindness. Then notice the next one. Does not envy or boast. So if I love you, I'm not going to sit here and talk about myself. I'm not going to make myself out to be something more than I'm not. Because that's not love for you. That's love of me. And I'm not going to look at some of the stuff you have and say, Wow, look at that. Chuck built a brand new guitar. I'm going to steal it. There should be no envy, right? There shouldn't be envy. If I love you, no envy. If I love you, there's not going to be boast. And then notice what it says. It says love is not arrogant. I'm not going to automatically assume I'm the most important person in this room. If I'm, I'm, I'm going to be humble around you, right? We're going to boast in the Lord together. If I love you, notice the next one, or rude, <laughs> means I'm, not, I'm going to be polite. Love is polite. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't ask you to do something above and beyond your means. And if you ask me to, when I come over to your house and say, take off your shoes, if I love you, that's what I'm going to do. Now, immediately, you're then going to ask me to put my shoes back on. I'll let you, your imagine, run with that one. Notice the next thing. It does not insist on its own way. If I love you, I'm not going to insist you do it my way, that my way is the only way, right? By the way, I think Jesus is this. I, I think if you were to talk to Jesus, this, there would be this patient, kind, polite, humble man who's not going around boasting. He's not going to be envious. He's not going to insist you have to do it my way. Notice the next thing. It's not going to be irritable or resentful. If I love you, I'm not going to be irritable at you. I'm not going to resent you. Notice the next thing. If I love you, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. I'm not going to rejoice when something bad happens to you or you do something bad and you get a reward for it. We don't rejoice in that, but notice what we do rejoice in. We rejoice with the truth, right? If I love you, that's what's going to happen. We're going to rejoice in God's truth together. If I love you, notice the next thing, it bears all things. It means I'm willing to bear with you. I'm willing to go through things with you because I love you, right? And if you love me, you're going to go through things together, right? This is what love looks like. By the way, love is not just having aspects of these throughout the day. Love is all of these things together in the same action. All of this is love. So so love bears. Then love believes all things. I I don't think it's, it's gullible. I think, it, I think it starts off with saying, I'm going to give the person the benefit of the doubt. If I love you, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You said something that I don't know what you meant, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. It's either a joke or he didn't really mean it to be hurtful. Give you the benefit of the doubt. It believes that God can work in your life. Right? And then the next thing, it hopes all things. It hopes. It hopes that as I talk to you and the problems that are going on in your life, 
I, 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 I go to God and I say, God, help this person, and I believe that God will help you, and I hope that someday you will repent, and I'm going to continue to pray for you until you repent, and I'm going to stick with you until there's repentance. I, I, I hope good things, and I but believe the best, right? And then it says, it endures all things. Endures all things. I wish it said it endured, it endured the good things. Because those are easy. It's, in, it's easy to endure when good things are happening. But enduring all things, that's where, that's where love is. So th- this is what love is, right? This is what it looks like. By the way, I, I, I have a little trick when I have trouble loving someone. And that happens quite a bit because I'm pretty selfish. Um, what I do is I, I do that little exercise. I turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and I say, if I love so-and-so, I will be kind. If I love so-and-so, I will be patient. And I walk through this chapter, looking at the words and saying, if I love so-and-so, I'll do this. And then when I pray, I say, Father, help me be patient. Help me be kind. Won't you know it? At the end of the day, it's really hard to hate somebody, when you're saying, okay, this is what I need to do. God, help me do this. It's really hard to to hold a grudge. And when you do hold a grudge, you know I really am bitter, and there's something very serious going on with my relationship with the Lord, and I need to stop what I'm doing, and I need to resolve this now, right? But this, this is what a wise person pursues, right? Pursues a right relationship with God, living for God for the right reasons, and then, and then it says, I'm going to love my neighbor, and I'm going to love them for the right reasons. I'm going to love them the right way. I'm going to love them the biblical way. I'm going to love them as Christ loved me. That, that's what a wise person pursues. They pursue that. The wise person then realizes the words of Jesus and says, if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? I seek what he's asking me to do first. What does he say? And all these other things will be provided. Do I believe him? Am I going to take him at his word? Do I trust him? Does, does he mean that? If I truly believe him, then I'll say, yes, he does. He will take care of me. I don't know what that's going to look like, but he will. And this is the best way. It might be scary. It's going to be very scary for some. But this is the way, and this is the right way. He will take care of you. You focus on what you need to focus on, walking with the Lord, being right with the Lord, loving each other, right? Loving each other inside of the church. Obviously, we're also supposed to love those outside of the church as well, right? knowing that they are created in the image of God. And one of the ways that we love them is to also share the gospel with them. If I really love someone, I'm going to tell them about how bad the state of their soul is. And this is what we're focused on, being right with God and loving one another. That's what we focus on. And that's what the wise pursue. That's the pursuit of the wise. The fool doesn't care about God's law, cares about the law of himself and only wants to gratify himself may the lord help us move in our heart draw us to his word draw him to his to himself that as we continue to live for him that he will make us more and more into the image of his son jesus christ
May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Father, we are so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for the things that you have said for us in here. We're so very thankful, Father, that you've given us the, 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 uh, the word that we can look at these things, even on a hot day. We can look at these things. We can see these truths. And we ask, Father, that you would continually work on our hearts, cause us to be more and more like your son, Jesus, that we may honor and glorify you, that we may uh, offer up a, a life that is full of wisdom uh, based upon your truth. We're so very thankful for Jesus, so very thankful for your promises. It's based upon him that we say, amen.